The trauma of bad news, of horrific incidents being in the news. We've been hearing a lot about that this summer with Paul Bernardo back in the news, unfortunately. But there is the trauma that families feel when horrific incidents happen. There's the trauma that neighbors, that police feel, that others involved feel. Rarely do we talk about the trauma that journalists deal with. That is something that our next guest has looked into deeply. But before we get to her, I want to remind you, uh, please hit subscribe button on whatever device or app or you know, however you're listening to us, hit subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode of the Full Comment Podcast. Oh, and by the way, this is the Full Comment Podcast. I'm Brian Lilly, your host. Early in my career, I spent a lot of time covering murders, court cases, some things that I still have never really told people about. You get to hear things and see things that are under publication bans, and even though you don't tell the public, you don't unsee what was there. You don't unhear what was there. That's part of what drove Tamara Cherry to write her book, The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. Tamara spent years as one of the top, uh, probably the top, crime reporter in Toronto. She'd worked for the Toronto Star, got recruited by the Toronto Sun. She was so good at what she did, and then recruited yet again by CTV to become their crime specialist because she was good at telling these stories. But being good at telling those stories took a toll. Tamara Cherry joins me now. She has uh, left the news business, but it has not left her due to what she spent years covering. Tamara, thanks for the time. Thanks for having me, Brian. Do do I sum it up fairly well in in terms of you have, you spent so long dealing with this. And honestly, we're in the same business, worked for some of the same places, but we haven't met, but I've seen your work. You were very good at what you did. Um, in telling the stories that that really grip people, but um, it took a toll on you. Yeah, it did. And it's interesting because I know that that that's what you've used to set up the book, but that's not originally what I started researching. This project actually began with me looking at the impact of the media on trauma survivors because the company that I created, the public relations firm that I created after I left journalism, was set up to support trauma survivors. And now it's trauma survivors and the stakeholders who surround them, including journalists. Um, but I set out to to look into the impact of the media on trauma survivors. And it sort of became inescapable, the idea of looking at the impact of trauma on members of the media. Because as I began speaking with and surveying journalists from across Canada and the United States who cover trauma, um, over and over again, I was hearing that this job has a negative impact on them, um, you know, from people suffering from PTSD, uh, burnout to, you know, one one memorable response I got from a journalist in the United States when I asked, you know, um, what impact has covering these traumatic events had on you personally, their response was, honestly, don't want to think about this. And then when I asked, um, what are your strategies for for coping with this stuff, um, their response was drink. And that was certainly something that I had seen amongst many of my own colleagues and friends in the field over my many years reporting on crime in the field. So um, it's interesting because like the book is still very much like it is still mostly about the impact of the media on trauma survivors. And I do want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. No, but I'm just saying that like 
as I was doing this research, not only was I realizing all the suffering from journalists around me, but I was having to come face to face with my own suffering, which I'm more comfortable talking about now because for many years, like many of my colleagues who I've talked to about this, if I was ever feeling off or really impacted by this, I would be thinking, well, who am I to suffer? My family wasn't killed. My husband's still alive. I don't live in this unsafe neighborhood. I have a steady income. Like, who am I to suffer? I'm driving away from this police tape where children are are running, you know, kicking the the or throwing the basketball around outside police tape, passing body bags on their way to school. Um, but it was taking a toll. And what I've come to realize is that my suffering does not take away from the very different suffering of the people that I was reporting on. And that's something I try to tell journalists. But something else I've also realized is, you know, in addition to that vicarious trauma, which is absorbing other people's trauma, whether you are, you know, watching it unfold in front of you as somebody arrives at at the scene where their loved one was was murdered or killed in a traffic fatality, and you you watch them as they get the news that their loved one is the one who didn't make it. Um, or you're watching somebody in court flinching every time they're watch they they watch this silent surveillance video of their son being executed with a gun over and over again. Um, that's vicarious trauma that you're absorbing. But there's also this thing called moral injury, which I hadn't heard about until I began this project. I, I haven't heard of it either. What is that? Oh my gosh, it, it's a term that honestly. Brian, it's been totally life-changing for me because it's made me understand so much of what I have felt over the years. And it is either, it either comes from, you know, witnessing things that you find morally reprehensible, which I did all the time, but also participating in things that you might find morally reprehensible. So as journalists, we're often going and knocking on the doors of the bereaved in the immediate aftermath of their traumatic loss. And that is... I mean, most journalists would say it's the worst part of their job. Um, one of the survey respondents in my research said it's the worst part of my job and the thing I like least about my profession. And that was a very common sentiment amongst journalists. And yet most journalists that I spoke with and, and surveyed said that they would contact trauma survivors in you know, within 24 hours of the traumatic event or as soon as they had the information to do so. So in my case, sometimes that was 24 hours after, sometimes that was 48 hours after, sometimes that was... 24 minutes after. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that was as something is unfolding and somebody's arriving at the scene. And as a journalist, you are trained to gather as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, so as to tell as comprehensive of a story as possible. But you feel like crap going and knocking on that door or approaching that person who's just come to place flowers at the scene and is sort of shooing you off. But, you know, your bosses are maybe telling you, well, just try one more time. I know they said no this morning, but maybe they've changed their mind by the afternoon. Or I know they told you no, but I see that they've spoken with that other media outlet. So can you just go knock on the door again or give them another call? And every time you do that, it chips away at your soul a little bit. And um, I got to say, I've spent a lot of money on therapy dealing with vicarious trauma, suffered from the job, but I've probably spent more on moral injury suffered from the job. And so I always tell journalists, you cannot adequately take care of yourself unless you're taking care of the people you're reporting on. I don't remember the first time I had to knock on the door after a tragedy, but I remember the last time I did it and mm -hmm. I never wanted to do it again. Uh, so I started out as a general assignment reporter 
and people often say, well, why do you cover politics? And I, you know, I always have glib jokes about how, well, fewer people die or things like, but that, that is accurate. Uh, my last year in Montreal, uh, there were 60 murders or just over 60 murders. And I was at most the scene of most of them. And some of them were absolutely horrific. And you, you end up carrying that with you, the things that you see, the things that you hear, and, and those times that you have to ask people those horrible questions. And, and I just want to point out, because you've mentioned this a couple of times, you're referring to early in your career when you were a general assignment reporter. Most journalists early in their career are doing these door knocks, are calling down these phone lists. One of, one of my first reporting gigs at, at a newspaper, I'll never forget, um, I think I was an intern at the time, and there was another intern sitting next to me. We had side-by-side desks. And I just remember her having, she had a printout of the phone book, like a photocopy of the phone book or a printout of Canada 411, all the same last name, a list of all the same last names. She had to call down this list looking for the next of kin of whatever latest tragedy in the city. And I just remember her staring down at that list, this young woman with tears streaming down her cheeks. And by that time, it's like, I didn't enjoy doing that, but my bosses respected the fact that I could like, okay, I must be doing something right. So I actually said to her, like, do you want me to do it? Because by that time I had learned to just bottle it all up and, you know, you just put it there and then eventually it'll dissolve. Well, it doesn't ever dissolve. It's all there. You're parking it all somewhere. And as, as one of my former camera guy colleagues, who's, who's in my book and who suffered from PTSD for many years, put it, he, his, his therapist told him, you can only park those memories in the boonies for so long at the back of your brain. Eventually they're going to come flooding out. And, and for me, that would happen whenever I would step away from the job. You know, if you asked me when I was on the job, how are you doing? I'd say, fine. Like, this is a really sad story. It's awful. I would cry for these people on my drives home. But overall, I wasn't drinking or using drugs. I was in a healthy relationship. I wasn't showing any of the classic signs that things were not okay. But when I'd step away from the job, you know, sometimes to go on vacation or when I would be on maternity leave or when I finally left in late 2019, that's when the world would start crashing down. And I would find myself like watching a news story about something that I had reported on millions of times before. And I would be sobbing uncontrollably or, you know, watching a commercial, I could start sobbing. Um, and it is, it's interesting, you know, like there were all these other signs that things were not okay, you know, snapping on my kids, um, suddenly like very little things really like seeming like the biggest deal in the world, just like being filled with rage over things that I should not have been upset by, you know, and I came to realize that this, this was the impact of, of my job and of not dealing with it over so many years. So I still believe it's a very important job. I think it needs to be done in a very different way. But I often tell journalists, you know, at whatever stage of their career, whether they're journalism students or, you know, seasoned journalists, like talk to somebody, not your partner, your sister, your whatever, you know, like talk to a professional who can help you actually create a narrative in your mind of all these things that you are you are seeing and, and hearing, as you said, um, and witnessing so that it doesn't just all get bungled up in there and then come and surprise you during what should be happy moments in your life. Yes. Um, you know, talking to you a little while ago, I spoke to um, an advocate for uh, Canadian Armed Forces veterans uh, dealing mm. with PTSD. Recently, I was speaking with the wife of a Toronto police officer 
who's longtime veteran. The conversation sounds similar, and oh, yeah. the these are all jobs that a little while ago we didn't think about um, the impact of the job on them. And you know, there's going to be a certain segment of the population that will say, "Oh, boohoo, journalists, who cares?" And, and I was, I, you know, I remember being told in J school, the audience doesn't care. The audience doesn't care what uh, how tough your job is. The audience doesn't care what it does to you, but. You know, whether we're talking about police officers, soldiers, anybody experiencing or dealing with some of the most horrific parts of life, you're going to have to um, deal with that trauma at some point. And we used to tell soldiers to suck it up. We used to tell cops to Mm -hmm. suck it up. We're slowly coming around to the idea that, um, you know, let's talk, as Bell Media likes to say, at least. Um, yes, that's another conversation for us to have. Um, but we are at least acknowledging that there is an impact. Um, I went to one therapy session, very strange therapist, and perhaps I should have gone back for more. Perhaps, you know, that, that would have been healthier for me. Instead, I just walked away from, from dealing with that, um, because I knew that it was taking me to a dark place. When, was it only after you left the job that you had this realization? Because as you say, you started the book. Mm-hmm. The, the The purpose of the book was ta- to talk about trauma survivors. And then you realized, I am one. Yeah, it's, oof, yeah, I still, I still struggle with that um, label. But so actually, the first time I saw a therapist was when I was on maternity leave with my second child. It would have been uh, in early 2017. And I remember I was having a lot of like really intrusive thoughts. I was showing all these classic signs of after Googling, you know, visiting Dr. Google and punching in my experiences and everything I came to realize was vicarious trauma. And uh, I remember reaching out to the office of a psychologist in my area out just outside of Toronto who specialized in working with first responders like police, fire, ambulance, you know, veterans, that sort of thing. And, um, it specialized in PTSD, vicarious trauma, all this stuff. And I reached out and I heard back from their receptionist said, sorry, they only see first responders. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to just throw a, throw a dart at the board and see who I find. And I found this woman who took evening or took, took, um, clients at nighttime, which could mean, which would mean that I wouldn't have to take my baby and, and toddler in tow with me while my husband was at work. And I went and I'll never forget the very first session, you know, she said, well, why are you here? And I said, I think I'm suffering from vicarious trauma or I was, you know, I've been a crime reporter for many years. I think I'm suffering from vicarious trauma. And she raised her eyebrows, kind of looked down on her notes. And I don't remember, I I don't know for sure if she actually said this, but this is how I remember it. Um, But basically she said something along the lines of, well, that's new. (laughs) And she lost me at that point, like totally not validated. I lasted three sessions. I left. I was, you know, like who am, again, who am I to suffer? You know, but then when I was doing my research, I was really deep into it. And, you know, I, I surveyed or interviewed more than a hundred trauma survivors from homicides to traffic fatalities, sexual violence to mass violence, in addition to more than two dozen journalists um, about how they cover things and the trauma that they've experienced from the job. And as I was like researching these cases, you know, each of these trauma survivors 
they filled out a survey, I and if they said, you know, they were describing the media coverage of their case or lack thereof, I was going through that, the media archives and researching every single case and everything, like it just, at one point I was, I was watching, streaming some show with my husband on the couch and it was a, you know, a fictional program and somebody died violently in it, in a traffic fatality. And the camera went up close to this. Again, it's an actor. I know it's not real, but the scene was so similar to a scene that was described in media coverage of a homicide that was part of my research that I just, I was instant, like I w- I've never before been so physically repulsed by something on TV. I, I've been physically repulsed by things I've seen in court, you know, certain mm-hmm. exhibits, autopsy photos, descriptions of things. But this was like, I was just like, I, I just remember putting my hand out and like, I can't, I can't look at this. I can't. And I'd never had that before. And since then, I've not been able to watch anything that depicts like realistic violence or things that remind me of the plethora of, of things that I covered over the years, whether it's single homicides, traffic fatalities, human trafficking, you know, somebody sent me a message the other day, human trafficking was something that I covered quite heavily, especially during my years at the Toronto Sun, wrote a book about it. And somebody sent me a message saying, Oh, have you seen this movie, whatever it is, the new movie on human trafficking? And I said, No, heard about it, have no interest in it. I've had my fill. Yeah, I know the time and I can't I have no appetite for it. I've heard that it's an important movie that tells an important story, but I won't be able to watch it for Similar reasons, um, yeah. some of the court cases that I covered, and it yeah. is, um, it's it, it eats at you. And now mm-hmm. I'm you know dealing with stuff that I thought I'd put behind me. Mm. Is it, one of the things that you just said, Tamara, is that you spoke to trauma survivors about the media coverage or the lack thereof, mm-hmm. and. How, what did trauma survivors tell you? Because sometimes, yes, you hear um, that people are very upset that you've got folks like you and me shoving a microphone or a camera in their face. But other times you get people reaching out and saying, no one will tell the story of what happened to me or no one will tell the story of what happened to my loved one. So is it just an individual situation? Um, Do people want their story to be told, but they want it to be told in a certain way? What did you Mm -hmm. learn from trauma survivors on that? Because we're we're not going to stop Mm -hmm. with um, a a news industry that does tell you that somebody was murdered on your street, because we all want to know uh, somebody was murdered on my street. Who? Why? What? Mm -hmm. I think the bigger problem for many people is that like there are there are some survivors who would rather their case just not be in the media at all, ever. Don't release the name of my loved one. We see that sometimes, mm-hmm. actually. And the media gets quite upset when, say, Toronto police says, we're not releasing the name of this homicide victim at the request of the family. But now I, I get it in a way that I never did as a journalist, that some people are just very, very private. But quite often, with the people that suffer under a crush of media attention, it's not necessarily that it is in the news. They understand that this is news, that people want to hear about it. It is the feeling of being harassed, stalked, hunted was one of the words that I heard by the media and not having anybody there to support them through that. You know, it's like they've just experienced the worst thing imaginable. 
Um, most of the survivors that I interviewed or surveyed had no prior experience with the media. And yet most of them were contacted by members, members of the media in the immediate aftermath of their traumatic event, whether it, they, whether they were a mass violence survivor who had just witnessed their friends being murdered or just, you know, hidden for hours on end thinking they're about to die or whether they were, you know, the mother, the father of a, of a homicide victim who is just in this cloud of shock and feeling so vulnerable. They were having reporters reaching out to them on social media, on the phone, coming to their door, coming to the funeral home, approaching them at the crime scene, all of these things, all these places where they felt like they should be safe. Suddenly they felt like, um, you know, they were being attacked, badgered. Um, so many words used to describe this stuff. And so that was the big thing. So I agree, Brian, we're not going to stop covering these things. But can we stop doing those door knocks, those phone calls? You know, I know that some people do want to talk, but one of the things I'm calling for is it's not just journalism that needs to change. It's the whole system that needs to change. We need to be all working more collaboratively. Journalists, homicide investigators, you know, traffic fatality investigators, victim service providers, people whose job it is to support survivors often are, you know, they don't deal with the media at all. I was just, I was just in touch recently with, you know, a journalist reached out to me and was really trying to do the right thing, like deal, deal with something in a trauma informed way. And she wanted to get a hold of the survivor and she knew how to get a hold of her. She could have just called, she could have knocked on the door, but she said, I think that me, you know, there's a little bit more to this story, but basically she was saying, I think that my presence at the survivor's door unannounced would cause more harm than good. So I'm looking for like an intermediary because I think this person would actually want to talk to me, but I just, I need a barrier in between us so that they can make the decision without me sitting in front of them. And so I was trying to help her with this. And I contacted somebody that I knew who worked for the local victim services agency. And they said, you know, we can't do that because of privacy reasons. And the homicide investigator doesn't feel comfortable doing it. And I said, this is a flaw in the system. This is a journalist who is trying to do right by the survivor to tell their story in a trauma-informed way, to extend the opportunity to speak. And I do think that the survivor would want to talk under these circumstances, but I don't think they would if that journalist just knocked on their door to begin with. And this is a system that is basically giving this journalist no choice but to potentially cause that further harm by showing up at their door or calling out of the blue. You know, because it's not set up in a collaborative way. We work in silos. You know, as a journalist, there was never a number for me to call, or rarely was there a number for me to call to say, is this per person talking? You know, it was calling through the phone book. It was going on Facebook. It was, you know, all these things. Unless I knew the officer in charge, say the homicide investigator, well, you know, sometimes I would call and say, would you mind asking the family if they want to talk? Or do you know if they want to talk? And sometimes they would know. No, they absolutely don't want to talk, you know? Mm -hmm. But even then, when it's not coming in an official way, in an official system that is set up where these people, it's their job to, part of their job is to talk to them about the media, inform them of the media, what their rights are, you know, what the process is. You know, even if I went back to my bosses and said, no, the investigator says they're not talking, they might still say, well, just like go knock on the door anyway and just check, you know, like the, the whole system needs to be, we need to be thinking of it differently. We need to be thinking of it in a way that is you know, we are not journalists. We are human beings. We cannot be objective flies on the wall when it comes to trauma. 
So this idea of us just, well, we just have to gather as much information as possible. And, you know, we didn't fire the gun that killed her son. We didn't drive drunk in the car that, that killed the, these kids. Um, so we're not the ones causing the harm. Like we need to realize, yes, we actually are causing harm. We're harming the people that we're reporting on. We're harming ourselves. And we haven't even talked about the harm that we're causing to news consumers through the ways that we, we, uh, tell some of these stories. But we need to recognize that, you know, we do need to do things in a different way. We're starting to talk about the fact that it's okay for Indigenous reporters, and it's actually good for Indigenous reporters to report on Indigenous communities, for Black reporters to report on Black communities, that there are benefits that can come from these things. I think now is the time that we recognize that there is a lot of good that can come from changing the way we tell these stories, doing them in a more trauma-informed way, because we'll not only be taking care of the people we're reporting on, we're not only going to be telling these very important stories better, but we'll also be taking care of ourselves, which is something that the news industry is beginning to care about. Let's talk about that when we come back. We'll take a quick break, then back with more from Tamara Cherry and her book, including on the impact on survivors. Tamara, your book is called uh, Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. How can we change the business of bad news. As we discussed earlier, we're not going to stop talking about bad news. We're not going to um, cease reporting on horrible things that happen because it's just human nature. We want to know. But you've said that there's an impact on journalists and being journalists, we talk a lot about ourselves and we've discussed that, but there's an impact on the consumer of that news. Mm -hmm. In your research for this book, what did you find was the impact and is it on casual users the impact or is is it just on people that watch 24 7 what what did you learn so there's so um like when we think about incidents of mass violence for example there's been research that shows that if you were a consumer of this wall-to-wall media coverage in the aftermath of a incident of mass violence say a school shooting um, you are at a higher risk of developing PTSD just by consuming this news. You know, you think about the sorts of things that um, are part of that news coverage. There are the very dramatic cell phone videos um, where you can hear sound of gunshots. There are the very dramatic shots of people coming from the scene, like out of the scene to safety with, you know, hysterical clips and scared looks on their faces, their hands above them. Um, it, all of that stuff can have an impact on us. And we're not just seeing it once, we're seeing it over and over and over again. So there's an argument to be made for not showing a lot of that stuff, period. But there's a much more obvious argument that if you're going to show it, don't show it over and over again, because that's putting people at a heightened risk. Something else, I mean, I actually, I can I can point to um, a conversation I had with a journalist just this week who had reached out to me seeking guidance on how to how to cover an incident of mass violence in a trauma-informed way. And they were basically, I don't want to give away any identifying details because there's publication bans in effect for what I'm talking about, but essentially part of this case, and I I won't say if it's in Canada or in the United States because I deal with journalists all over the place, but part of this case was um, something that could essentially, you know, potentially incite violence. Um, from other people, if if it's something that was talked about publicly, and the, the journalist's initial response was, "Well, we we have to be able to report this. It's important." And I basically said, "We need to start thinking about these things differently because as journalists, we are inherently very entitled, and usually that's a very good thing. Um, you know, 
you mentioned off air, off air, Brian, dealing with politicians. You might deal with politicians a certain way, but we need to deal with trauma survivors in a different way. So as politicians, it's it's good that journalists are entitled because we're holding them to account. But when it comes to trauma, we can't just be entitled to all getting all of the information and us being the the gatekeepers of this information and deciding what is best for the public to see because by and large our industry is not trauma informed yet so i think that we need to um be okay with having conversations with people like lawyers and victim advocates and um you know all these people that sur- surround trauma survivors and are hopefully looking out for their best interests and be okay with not being able to report certain things because there's something, so I kind of got off track there, but in incidents of mass violence, there's something called the media contagion effect. So for example, um, Superior Court Justice Anne Malloy in Toronto, when she was uh, sentencing the the young man who was responsible for the Toronto van attack, who I'm not going to name now, and you'll understand in a minute, she chose not to name him because she pointed out that many perpetrators of these incidents of mass violence are seeking infamy. They want to become famous. And indeed, we knew in that case from evidence heard in court uh, that was not disputed that he had been, his actions had been inspired by the actions of others, at least two other yeah. mass, mass, mass killers. And the the media got their backs up and calling this, this, this Superior Court Justice Anne Malloy saying that she was editorializing and this was none of her business because she encouraged the media to not report the name. Well, every major media outlet continued to report the name. And I wrote an op-ed in the Toronto Star at the time saying like, no, like this is, we're right to not report the name because really what, what changes in the story by reporting the name? We can report all about this guy. We can talk about his characteristics. Was he a loner? Was this blah, blah, blah. We can glean these things, but why do we need to see his face and show his name? when research has actually shown this thing called the media contagion effect and it's repeated itself over and over and over again. And I talked about this with examples in my op-ed where the actions of one mass killer then inspire the actions of the next mass killer. It happens. Research has, has shown it. But we in the media, we do so many things in a particular way just because it's the way they've always been done. We need to begin to get uncomfortable with some of that and and be more open to changing the ways that we do things. Well, we've spent a lot of time this summer talking about Paul Bernardo, and there's a case that is more than 30 years old or about mm-hmm. 30 years old. And we're just talking about his transfer within the prison. And, and people keep saying, well, you know, I, I want to acknowledge the impact this has on the family. I can't imagine the impact on the French and Mahaffey families, or even the Homoka family, because you know, we too often forget that uh, Tammy, uh, Carla Homoka's sister, was mm-hmm. one of their victims. Um, I can't imagine what it's like for the family hearing his name over and over again. But also, how do you how do you tell the story without using mm-hmm. his name? Well, thankfully for those families. Uh, I mean, I, I struggle to use the word thankfully um, in regards to anything that has to do with them, but they have this wonderful lawyer, Timothy Danson, who for decades has advocated on their behalf. And I was actually just listening to an interview this morning with John Moore um, and Timothy Danson. And it was interesting because John asked him 
I, you're, I think John said something along the lines of it can't be easy calling these families whenever you hear about something and giving them the news that they're here. Here we go again. And Timothy Danson talked about basically he didn't use this term, but he was talking about trauma responses and, you know, hearing their breathing change and how these memories all come flooding back and it brings it all back. And I, I was just thinking, you know, isn't that interesting? Because that, like, that is what happens to trauma survivors all the time with the media when we bring things up unexpectedly. In this case, I would argue that it is not unexpectedly that it is in the media in this case, you know, I assume Timothy Danson would have, um, you know, warned the families about, they, they would know by this point that it would be in the media, but I still like, I don't like talk. I don't, I don't like mentioning his name. I, uh, I remember being told by one newsroom boss, like, go see if you can get an interview interview with Bernardo there. I just said it. And like, go get an interview, like, see if you can get an interview. Everyone's tried. Nobody can get an interview. And I just, I said, no, why would I give this guy a platform? It's, it's not about him. Let's let him rot. Let's just forget about him. You know, there are certain times that we need to talk about things because in this case, we're talking about institutional change that may need to happen or should happen or shouldn't happen, whatever. We're having thoughtful conversations about it. Um, but it is harmful for the survivors. It's not easy. Survivors have told me over and over and over again, you know, that their trauma responses are activated anytime their their case or similar cases are mentioned in the news to the point that many survivors don't even consume the news anymore. They don't read the newspaper. They don't turn on the TV to news channels. They, they're very limited in the news that they have. Um, I, I heard that a lot, especially in the mass violence community, but even just with, you know, single traffic fatalities or homicides that they just don't watch because they don't want to be brought back to that place. There, were, there was a homicide survivor north of Toronto who told me that, you know, her sister had been murdered in a murder-suicide in March of, of such and such year. And the, the homicide investigators told her at the time, told her family, don't just don't watch the news. And I, I assume that it's because they didn't, you know, they, they knew it would be difficult for them and it would be harmful and all that stuff. But then, you know, because it was a murder-suicide, there was no trial process or anything like that. It was in the media a lot for the first few weeks, and then it just sort of went away. So she was caught off guard when later in the year, in December, she was sitting there watching the news, and on came the the roundup, uh, the crime roundup for the year, you know, the end of year homicide roundup. And suddenly she saw her sister's body being removed from this house in a body bag, and she'd never seen that image before. And it all came Oh, my back. goodness. And she was so thankful that her, her parents didn't see it because- you know, they're also news consumers. And uh, yeah, like it, that is just so, so common. Like the, the ways that we trigger these trauma responses that they, we activate them. And, and it's not just a matter of making them sad again. It is their heart, heart rates quickening. It is they, um, like Tim Danson said, they're breathing changing though. All those memories come flooding back. It can leave them in a depressed state, an anxious state, a fearful state for hours, days, weeks, you know, and, and our interactions as journalists with these survivors can do the same thing. We're often going and extracting their trauma from them, take, take, taking, and then tiptoeing away and going, you know, rushing to file our story. Meanwhile, we're leaving them in this heightened state of trauma. Um, and they're feeling afraid and anxious and, 
you know, untrusting of people and all of these things that come with these trauma responses. And you do that enough times and it can actually have long-term physical impacts on these survivors. You know, and, and you look at the way that, that survivors uh, react differently. The, the French and Mahaffey families have, as you said, mostly spoken through Timothy Danson. Uh, I, I think of um, another murder of a young woman that happened around the same time, Nina de Villiers. Her mother turned around and became an advocate. She, yeah, Priscilla. Priscilla went on and, and became a politician. Um, and it, it, she used it in a, or, or, or reacted in a very different way. We have to try and find a way to be respectful. Uh, too often, we're not. You've used the term trauma-informed journalism several times. What is that? Mm-hmm. I think... Um and I'm always sort of like changing my views because I'm still learning so much more about this. But I think the essence of trauma-informed journalism is understanding the impact that our actions before we show up at that door, while we're at that door, and after we leave that door have on that trauma survivor and adjusting our actions accordingly. It is understanding that just by virtue of showing up at that door unannounced without that barrier in between. It's not trauma informed. It's understanding that in many cases we are causing more harm than good. It is, it is. And I'm, I'm right now I'm calling upon all of these things that if you, if you go to my website, Brian, I actually have a series of videos from trauma survivors where I've edited, edited together these compilations of um, basically these vignettes from trauma survivors talking about what is trauma informed journalism for them And it is centering the survivor's experience. It is not thinking about what I need for my story. It is what do you want to get out of this process? And how can we work together to tell the story? It is giving agency to that trauma survivor. It's not saying, here's here's my pen, write, write the story and then file it off to my editor. It is saying, here's what I'm writing. Do you still feel comfortable with it? Are you still comfortable with this? You know, if it's not an accountability interview, it is saying, here's what I'm thinking of asking you before I turn on my recorder, before the camera guy even comes in. Here's what I'd like to talk to you about. Are you comfortable with this? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that is going to bring you to an unsafe space? Are these all safe spaces? Is there anything you'd like me to um, reword? Are there any questions you'd like me to delete, change, or add? What do you want to get out of this? And then I'm going to make sure that that is part of the story. It is centering the survivor's experience. And we can still tell very good stories. I would argue better stories that way. Because something we haven't discussed um, in this conversation, Brian, is something that I refer to as trauma brain. Brains on trauma do not act like brains not on trauma. Trauma can impact different people's brains differently. Sometimes it impacts the way that they remember things. And as journalists, our job is to regurgitate facts to the public to tell the public, this is what happened. This is how it happened. But quite often a trauma survivor, especially in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic event, um, they actually cannot process what has happened in a chronological way or even in an accurate way. I had, I had a mass violence survivor tell me that two days after the, the shooting at her high school, she told a journalist that she had seen a tank outside her school, a military tank. There was no tank. So it's a small detail that the reporter would be able to say, well, I'm looking back, no, there was no tank. Mm-hmm. But that could have been, she could have said anything, you know, because her brain, she was sure 
She just, her school was under attack. She was hiding for hours, fearing for her life. She felt she was under attack. It makes sense. Of course, she would think that the military would respond to that, that there'd be a tank driving down her suburban street, but there was no tank. And so what else are we reporting that is not accurate? Um, Trauma brains, though, we need to care for them differently. We can't speak with trauma survivors the way that we speak with politicians. Um, and, and I tell you, you were of describing the public, yeah. um, interviewing yeah. or how, how you think that we should interview uh, people experiencing trauma. It, it, and the way you're describing it is something I would never do with a politician. Are you comfortable with what I'm saying? Are you oh, comfortable with me asking these questions? But they're two very different, mm-hmm. um, very, very different stories. And, and there's nothing that you're describing that takes away from uh, telling that, that trauma survivor story. They experience something. You want to yeah. make sure that you're telling an accurate story, but also one that isn't taking them back down a dark place. Uh, that yeah. is not what we do with poli- politicians. It's, well, yeah. you screwed up, uh, or we think you screwed up. Can yeah. can you answer for this? The, the tr- someone that's just experienced a loved one being killed doesn't have to account for anything. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't even need to speak to us if they don't want to. Yeah, something that journalists often fight with me over. Most most of the things I talk about, journalists are just yeah happy to hear. Like, yes, tell us more. How can we do better? Because journalists. By and large, they go into this profession because they want to make a positive impact in this world. But one of the things that I often butt heads with people over is the idea of showing a trauma survivor your story before it's shared with the rest of the world, when when reasonable, when possible. You know, deadlines make can make that very difficult. And it's simply to take away that element of surprise, the element of, of something that so many survivors describe to me, which is basically the media making them flinch. Because they never know when's the story going to come out, what's it going to look like, what pictures are they going to use, um, which clips are they going to use. I talked to this reporter for an hour, but the story is only going to be two minutes. Are they only going to use the part of me breaking down? You know, so the idea of showing a survivor their story, so many journalists say to me, but I can't, like, we, we can't do that. We have policies against that. We can't show stories. And I just say, why not? Why is that? Think about why that policy is in place. Is there a legal reason for it? Is there, you know, think about all these reasons and do they apply specifically to trauma survivors? Maybe some of them, yes. Maybe some trauma survivors do experience accountability interviews and rightfully so. But the vast, vast majority, we are only speaking to these people to extract their trauma, to show the world what their trauma is. So why would we not at least afford to them the opportunity to just look at it? As, as somebody who's written a book on this and includes the stories of some 100 plus trauma survivors, I followed up with every single one of those survivors whose, whose, whose story is mentioned in my book, whether it's in a sentence or in a chapter or multiple chapters. And I said, here's everything I've written. If you want to look at it, take a look at it. And, you know, of those 100 or so trauma survivors that reviewed their excerpts, um, I think there was like two that requested changes. One of them was the mother of a homicide a homicide victim who in her on in her, in her brain on trauma had told me that her son had been stabbed in the chest when he'd actually been stabbed in the back so that was a factual error she's like oh my gosh i can't believe mm-hmm. i said that can you change that um another one was somebody who who asked that i i say that her husband was murdered instead of killed it was factually correct yeah absolutely that was important to her and there was another who just said can you just get rid of just clean up some of my my words, I didn't realize I said like so many times. 
yeah, absolutely. Like it's your words. You tell me what you want to say. But everybody else, it was just taking away that that element of surprise. Yeah, that, that's going to take away their breath when they read it. Yes. Why should I, why should they be reading my book at the same time as you, Brian Lilly, a journalist who's just reading it? This is their story. These are their stories. You know, I consider them like almost co-authors of this book. Like it is, it is their stories. And the after learning about trauma, um, the doing this research project and then writing the book, the hardest part of this process for me was circling back to those survivors and asking them, do you want to read this? I was I was so hyper aware of the, the very heavy burden. I don't like to use the word burden, but just like this crushing responsibility to get it right for these survivors. And so aware of the, the immense harm that I could cause by not getting it right. Um, it was, it was crushing at, at times. And, um, that's a responsibility I never felt as a journalist. Cause I always just felt, you know, I was always focused on the greater good. I think about interviews I did with human trafficking survivors. I was always focused on making sure that this didn't happen to somebody else, but I wasn't focused on how do I take care of this victim, this survivor in front of me who has actually experienced this, these layers upon layers of trauma. I was focused on how do we educate the public? How do we support other survivors? But I wasn't focused on this survivor in particular. So it's just about changing the way that we, um, we think about things and do things. Have you had any discussions with journalism schools since the book came out? Hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, since I began this research project a few years ago and started talking about it on social media, I get requests all the time from uh, journalism professors, from journalism students to talk to them about it, and from working journalists who just want to know how they can do better. And now that the book is out, um, I hear from some J school professors, some journalists, so professors saying, I'm going to work this into the curriculum somehow. Like this is something that every journalist should read. And I agree. That's one of the reasons that I wrote it. I feel very strongly about that, but also working journalists who are telling me like, these are the tangible things that I'm doing differently now. Cause I had no idea that the way I was doing them before was causing harm. So thank you. So like, I hope that these, that this book will be required reading for any journalism student and any victim service provider, frankly, homicide investigators, like, There's stuff in this book that will just show you how us not working together is causing further harm. And that's nobody's intention. That's not what what anybody wants to get out of it. Um, But also, I just, I hope that newsrooms encourage their staff to read this. Um, You know, it's just, I feel so strongly about it, not just so that other survivors don't suffer, but so that journalists don't suffer too, because I suffered a lot by getting things wrong when I thought my good intentions were good enough and they weren't. Tamara, thanks for the time. Thanks for the book. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the platform. Tamara Cherry is the woman, the brains behind Pickup Communications. She's also the author of The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. My name is Brian Lilly. This has been the Full Comment Podcast, a post-media production. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Amazon Music. And you can help us out by giving us a rating, leaving a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.